The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Finstaden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about the plight of all those African students who have been stranded in China, not just in Wuhan, but across the country. Uh, and it's particularly difficult over these past few weeks because they've been watching how other Africans have been evacuated, most notably, Kobus, your own compatriots. There was a very high-profile evacuation that recently took place of, I don't even know the exact number. I've been following this as closely as anybody. Some numbers said 122, some said 124, some, it, the precise number is not known, but more than 100 South Africans recently came back to, uh, from, from Wuhan, came back to South Africa. They're now being quarantined in the northern province of Limpopo, and uh, they came back to a very, very divided response, a country very, very divided in reaction to, to their arrival and to whether or not it was worth it, especially now as the situation in China regarding COVID-19 appears to be stabilizing and at the same time, the situation where you are, Kobus, and you're at home right now because nobody's working, uh, seems to be getting worse. So talk to us a little bit about the feeling that people have now regarding the evacuation that recently took place. The You're right. The, the reaction was very mixed. Um, it started off as with a lot of pressure for the government to, um, to bring the people home. Um, and then as the crisis started really taking off in South Africa, it, it then raised a lot of anxiety about whether they'll bring um, COVID-19 to the country. You know, the, that was a little bit misguided because they were checked up and down. They were, you know, some of them who did show some kind of symptoms were, were not allowed on the plane. And meanwhile, there was, you know, um, the, the, the checking in South Africa actually was, you know, it took a little while to, to actually gather speed. Um, everything is now snapped into panic stations, essentially. Um, with the, the, the president, um, the, the last weekend, uh, did a big announcement saying that they are um, declaring a state of disaster in the country, and the entire country is now essentially on social distancing. Um, so, you know, so, so over the last few days, the country has kind of caught up with the, with the rest of the world in, um, in, in putting in a, a whole bunch of measures. Um, but, you know... In the middle of this, these poor people came back to protests and, you know, kind of denunciations on Twitter and so on. Um, and they're now, you know, far away in the northern, the northern part of the country in isolation. Altogether, there's about 82,000 African students who, who are studying in China. Uh, not all of them are scholarships. And uh, in a lot of time, there's a perception that the Chinese are underwriting uh, all of the expenses for African students, and that's actually uh, not correct. Uh, there are about 4,600 students who are estimated to be in Wuhan, which is, of course, the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, here are the countries that have evacuated already, uh, both from Wuhan and from China. Egypt, Algeria, Libya, Mauritius, Mauritania, Morocco, Seychelles, South Africa, and Tunisia. Uh, they have evacuated their citizens 
notably some of Africa's largest countries, uh, including Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, Ghana, did not. And they were adamant about not bringing, it, uh, bringing the students home. And this was very, very despairing for many of the students who are suffering in living in isolation. Uh, they were having limited access to uh, for money, to food, to medication. Uh, it was an enormous emotional pressure. Uh, so for it's going on now into the third month of living in isolation in many respects. Uh, and remember, you are so far away from home. So it's not the same as Chinese people who are living in this quarantine or in this isolation because they have family and friends who are close by. In this case, so many of the students felt isolated and then reading the headlines back home and the news about the discussion going on as to whether to evacuate or not was also very, very demoralizing according to many of the media reports. But let's get a first-hand perspective as to what's going on and we are thrilled to have with us today for the first time on the program, Michael Adeny, who is a doctoral researcher from Ghana and also vice president of the Ghanaian Student Association in Wuhan. Uh, he's, a, he's at the Research Institute of Environmental Law at Wuhan University in Hubei province. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Michael. Thank you very much, Eric. Michael, let's first start. Tell us a little bit about your experience for these past two months of living in effectively in a quarantine, stuck in your apartment. Tell us a little bit about what that's been like and, and what the situation is today for you. Thank you, um, Eric. So let me begin with, by saying that I actually enjoyed my stay in China, especially Wuhan, because of the how vibrant the city is until 23rd of January when I was to travel to Amsterdam for a short research visit on, on the 24th. But then on the 23rd, all of a sudden, we heard the news around 3 a.m. that all flights and public transport have been shut down. So that was quite very disappointing because all of a sudden, it's like all my plans were um, crashing. And to add, uh, make me more vulnerable is the fact that we did not have information on when the lockdown was going to be lifted. So the first week was quite emotionally challenging. Then later, um, we saw the numbers climbing. That is when we started mounting pressure on our government to come and evacuate us. Because if you uh, understand with, um, or agree with me, Eric, we were facing a triple threat. The first one is the risk of getting infection with the now pandemic um, co uh, caused by COVID-19. So... We, we were very much afraid. We were fearing for our lives. And the other thing is that we don't, and most of us do not speak the Chinese language. And the announcement from the prevention and control center usually comes in Chinese language on your phone. We usually um, thought those were normal messages sent from our telecom providers. And the third threat is the threat of isolation because of our limited social support. We, don't, we were advised to social distance right from the beginning, whereby we were not allowed to visit each other, even in our dormitories, because we are confined to our dormitories. So being alone in your room, not understanding the language and the announcement, we were following social media information, and they were quite paralyzing, as in the message we were reading were also quite gloomy. So we became very much afraid, and that exposed most of us to emotional panics, mental breakdowns, 
So we, that is when we intensify the, the, ten, the pressure on our government to come and evacuate us. So for us, evacuation was much of our government moving us from a place of danger into a place of safety. It is not really about us not liking China or not wanting to be in China when the situation got tough for China. Because we heard on social media that um, since China has been with us and we have been with Chinese, we should be with them during these trying times. But even our Chinese colleagues here were all in panic mode. So that has been the experience. It has been very extremely stressful and traumatic because of the increased death rate and then the infection that peaked around 80,000. Um, so is, are, are the students who are in Wuhan now, do they still want to evacuate, to be evacuated now? Or are there, is there now a feeling that, well, if they are evacuated, they'll just be facing the same situation back in Ghana? The situation here is that we are divided. But I can say majority still want to go home because this is the 56th day of being in quarantine. A lot of us have been in our room for 56 days without any brother. So, and still we do not know when this is going to end. Some people are saying it will end mid-April, I dare say early May, because the Chinese government d- d- does not want to take chances. So going back home to get some bread, spend time with your family, relay your experience and everything, is something that is welcome, even though we know it's a big ask. But I can say majority want to go home, except the few who are graduating in, in June. They want to stay, finalize their master's or PhD or bachelor's thesis, and go home for good but majority will want to go home. How did it feel when you went online to see the comments from back home? And in Ghana, there were many, many people who did not want you to come home. They felt that you would bring back the virus. There were comments over the fact that they perceive you to be rich and wealthy and that you are overseas, so stay overseas. You can get better care in China than you could back home. And that all of the complaining that you and other students were doing uh, felt, I'm trying to find the right word, but it felt, it didn't, it, you know, they couldn't accept it given the conditions that many people back in Ghana and other parts of Africa have to contend with in terms of the difficulties that they face. How did, how did you process that, though, those feelings and the discussions online that was very hostile to your request to come home? Yeah, Eric, um, these things raised broader concerns. But I felt, first of all, that our own people have abandoned us, that um, they, they, they're treating us as the virus. They, uh, also, we later understood that those people were misguided or misinformed because majority of us here, we have been here for 56 days. None of us have been taken ill for the virus. So they, they are feared that we were coming with the virus was a bit misinformed, but then also we have to understand them. But as a country, a small country like Ghana, or if by extension other smaller countries like Botswana, Namibia, Lesotho in Africa, I think times like this um, calls for national unity, whereby all of us will come together to make sure that the minority of us who are in place of danger are rescued or or their welfare is prioritized. This is how we build nationalism and a sense of patriotism. But I think most of our countries really missed that um, opportunity because now we realize that 
our countries do not have our back. Even our own people do not have our back. Whereby, when the government initially tried to evacuate us, we received messages from our friends and even sometimes our family members that when you come, do not visit me. They, they think we're coming with the virus. So for me, even after this whole thing, we have to really uh, make time for forgiveness and and, and healing of relationships but it was not easy for us at all whereby most people not only Ghanaians but Kenyans and Ugandans were like no they, they are now rethinking their nationality and if possible they, they really pay anything they need to get na uh, the nationality of other countries even including Africa because we felt like our people do not really care about us and it is us today, but tomorrow it will be other, other people from our countries who will be in danger. That means our government will not go and get them. So that was the feeling. It was quite disappointing and disheartening. Did you get um, much you know, support or information or briefings or so on from the, the Ghanaian embassy in China? And also, did families of the students get that similar kind of briefings or support from the government back home? I saw that in Zimbabwe, they did, they did pull, you know, kind of draw together some of the parents and so on and brief them specifically. Yeah, so um, I think precisely on the 24th, our ambassador called me and the deputy ambassador also called me. And right from the 24th, we started having 48 hours um, meeting. So every 48 hours, we will have a meeting. We will brief them about our situation and they will convey our, uh, our request to the government back home and then they will give us feedback in the next meeting. So I can say that we actively engage our embassy in Beijing or our government through the embassy in Beijing. So initially, we realized they were not really understanding our situation, but they were rather bent on telling us what the government intends to do and not really understanding our concerns. But we were able to iron these things out. So I can say that our government really did well, except that they did not evacuate us. And um, their reason was that they, are, they don't have the facilities to quarantine us. And also, according to public health, um, regulations it is better for us to be in the at, at the epicenter rather than sending us home because that may amount to the importation of the virus and we we found that to be very disappointing because the whole point of wanting to come home was also a preventive measure on our part we didn't want any of our people here to get the virus for the fear of the unknown now your ambassador edward bohateng is widely regarded as one of the most competent African ambassadors in, in China today. I mean, he is widely, widely respected. So it's not surprising to me that he was facilitating quite a bit of communication and he was really engaged in this process. Uh, from my understanding, though, not all of the embassies were as responsive as the Ghanaian embassy in, Be in Beijing was. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the interactions that you've had with some of your your classmates and some other African students who may have not had the support of their embassies, what were they saying? In fact, most of them were very disappointed. I can mention Nigeria, the Nigerian student here, the Malawian student, the Zimbabwean student, and Ethiopia. But I think the Ethiopia government is, at the latter part moved in swiftly to provide some financial support. But especially Niger the embassy of Nigeria and Zimbabwe, 
they were not forthcoming and it took like almost a month for them to even get a feedback from their embassies which was for them to adhere to the preventive measures so zimbabwe malawi uganda the financial support i understand they are still waiting to get it yeah so most students are still quite disappointed in the response of their government because majority of the embassies in beijing all they could do for their student was to advise them to adhere strictly to the preventive measures and to also go in for the support of the chinese government only few provided financial support as far as i i can remember the Ghanaian um, student here each received 500 usd and food items but um i think ethiopians also received financial support the Botswana student received 1000 renminbi each and i think kenyans also are still yet to receive the promised money senegalese received 1000 dollars each which is 7000 renminbi guinean student also received financial support ivorians received 500 dollars each but apart from this none of the countries received any support apart from advice um, and how was your interactions with the Chinese government and Chinese authorities there? Like you mentioned that there was Chinese language um, messages coming through on your phone. Did you uh, did they make an effort to, to try and kind of uh, also make that more accessible for foreigners? And then also, what were some of your other interactions like with the authorities? Yeah, so um, in the beginning, we all know that the th- it, uh, this epidemic started in a very... Um, let me say, and um, it was we were all unprepared. It happened at the time we least expected, so we were all panicking in our responses. But um, the Chinese government was really responsive. Anytime we raised any concerns, they moved swift, very swiftly, to rectify the situation. So in the beginning, we we're having some of these challenges, but later they started giving us free food giving us free immune boosting, uh, boosting teens. From time to time, they will provide us with fruit. So the Chinese government, I would say, really did well than our own government, even including the government of Ghana. And I say this not as a propaganda, but even if we will do a video call, I will show you. They, they gave us each, each student in our dormitories, for instance, they gave us a box of apples, which were more than 30 each. They gave us tea from time to time, and we received breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the messages now, our universities provide us frequent updates that complement the ones we receive on our phones. And these updates are both in Chinese and in English. So I would say that the Chinese government has been very responsive. They have been very responsive, and they, t- they took our criticisms um, serious. As in any time we criticize something, they will address it. So I would say that they really adjusted to our, our needs. Hmm. It's really interesting. You, you know, there was a, Kobus, you mentioned uh, in Harare, there was a briefing done by Zhao Baogang, who is Zhao, uh, is the deputy ambassador to the embassy, the Chinese embassy there. And he met with parents. And one of the things he wanted to reassure parents was the fact that, uh, as Michael said, not a single African student has been infected and they are being well cared for. And so he and he was saying that bringing the students back would actually add complications. And this was a message that both the Zimbabwe and the Chinese government said. Now, the Chinese government also had, I think, 
and again, I'm, I'm just kind of projecting here a propaganda or a political aspect of this, that they don't want to look weak. They want to have the, the perception and the reality, as we're hearing from Michael, that they are taking care of these students and that they are in good care. And that was the message from Deputy Ambassador Zhao. Uh, that being said, and it does sound like you feel better about this or the situation now, um, this was traumatic, as you mentioned, and it was a jolt to the system. Now, China, for the past 10 years, has really pitched itself as being a, a go-to destination for African students, an aspirational destination for African students. As we mentioned, there are some 82,000 Africans who now study in China. That's second only to France uh, and the Chinese are closing the, the gap with the French very, very quickly. Do you get the sense that uh, this has changed your relationship with China? Uh, do you feel different about China? I mean, do you want to continue your studies as this starts to to resolve itself? Because in China, it's actually starting to wrap up, it looks like, whereas in the rest of the world where we are, we're now starting to deal with COVID-19. But now that you can potentially see the light at the end of the tunnel— how has this experience changed, for better or for worse, your perceptions of China? I would say it is for better. It is for better because as an African student, you mentioned the Chinese um, deputy ambassador had, had a meeting with, in Harare. It happened also in Ghana. I think every, 40, uh, every 48 hours they were having a, me a media briefing in Ghana, assuring our people. But they misunderstood our situation because if you agree with me, the mental and emotional aspect was very traumatizing so our stay here was a very traumatizing so aside the fear of infection we are contending with our mental health and sanity but now back to your question i would say that this has changed my perspective on china for the better we this could happen to any country any country when it happened, we will say even the system here in China was not ready for it. But the Chinese government released all its resources, the politi political will and everything, and they moved in swiftly to make sure that the virus is contained. And like you said, now the numbers are looking good, and very soon it will be contained. I, from where I come from, this would have swept most people and that fatality would have been very high. So I have learned especially responses to disasters like this. And I wish that our countries will also respond to outbreaks or pandemics in this way. So I have learned a lot, especially on how to manage public health emergencies, how to manage even extreme climatic event like flooding, which is a perennial issue in Ghana. Always it happens, but it, when it happens, we are not ready. So I think we have to look at it from the, the, the brighter side, the lessons to be learned. Of course, the Chinese government made a lot of mistakes. It made a lot of mistakes, but they all events like this, you always make mistakes. But at the end of the day, their health system is going to be stronger than this. And I believe even on the social side, most people in Wuhan should unity and solidarity friendships were strengthened so i think at the end of the day we are all going to be more resilient we're going to be wiser in how we spend our time either together or in a solitary confinement so it, I, I would say that it has changed my perspective for for the best and not for the worst 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. And what was life like in Wuhan while you were there? I mean, could you, could you see any kind of, I know that you were mostly in your room, but did you see glimpses on TV or out, you know, on walks or whatever um, of, of how the city actually was affected by, by the crisis? Yeah, Wuhan, a population of 11 million people, is a very vibrant, or, uh, vibrant city where always you see crowded places, cars moving up and down. So from the 23rd to the 8th of February, we were allowed to go out, especially when you have to go and buy groceries. But people deserted the street. It became like a ghost city because nobody didn't want to go out for the fear of infection. But the, all this changed from the 8th of February, where we were not allowed to step out of our, our houses at all. And those of us in the university campuses, we've not been able to step out of our dormitories at all. But some of our colleagues who are staying outside, in every big house, every three days, only one person is allowed to go out. So you have to pull your resources together. So I say this to say that now everything has grounded to a halt. All the streets are empty. The cars you see are basically the police cars or the ambulance. And I think from the 13th of this month, certain vital um, companies providing vital services are now allowed to go to work. Yeah, but when I look through my window, the streets are always empty. The city is very calm, very, very calm. And just to give people some perspective here, Wuhan is a city of 11 or 12 million people. I mean, this is a city bigger than New York. Uh, and they shut it all down. I mean, it is remarkable uh, what they were able to do. I mean, just, uh, you know, again, it is incredible how they just locked the city down. Um, when they said you couldn't go out of your dorm, does that mean you couldn't go out of your room? Were you stuck in your room the whole time? Or were you in the building and you could go into the courtyard? Uh, was there a common area? Or you couldn't interact with anybody in the dormitory? You had to do social distancing from everybody? Or was it, was it that solitary? What was it like day to day for you? Eric, exactly what you said. We were allowed to go for a walk in the, in, in the um, yard or the courtyard. You could also walk in your corridor. And we are able to interact with the people inside the dormitory. So there are three dormitories here at the International Student Dormitory, Dormitory 1, 2, and 3. So we are allowed to visit each other, but we have to wear the mask and also practice social distancing. The, um, the school did not tell us to practice social distancing, but we adhere to that, even when we had to meet and, and talk about events. Usually the African student here, when we meet one another, we share our experiences. It's because we, we feel like we are the left behind. We have to encourage each other. We have to find out or check on each other how, how we are doing. But we are allowed to go out and walk, just that you cannot get out of the yard. But most times we are in our rooms, and I am finalizing my doctoral thesis now. For the first six weeks, I would say I did not have the mind to learn or to do anything academic, but when 
um, we realized that our government was not coming to get us, then we started trying to pull ourselves together to make ourselves ready for academic work. So for the past one week or so, I've been working seriously on my doctoral thesis, but I would say it's not easy at all. It's not easy at all, even though the numbers are looking good. When we look forward, uh, we, we process the feeling that we may, we may get our freedom somewhere in April is not, is not good even though we are supposed to be rejoicing that we are nearing the, the end of the tunnel. You know, as, as Eric mentioned, the, um, you know, it's, it's only really starting to kind of to, to pick up speed in Africa now. Africa has been, you know, relatively low, relatively slow in, in, in terms of infections. What kind of advice do you have for your fellow Ghanaians and fellow Africans in, in how to best deal with the crisis? Yeah, thank you, Kobos. My advice is that we should be united. This is not the time for politics. We, all, we see what, um, how China moved in as one nation. There are a lot of people who did not agree or may not agree with what the government did, but they did not let that to divide them. They moved in as one country. We all saw how people were chanting, Wuhan Jaya, Wuhan Jaya, Wuhan stay strong. They should release resources. And money alone cannot solve the virus. Like we joke about it here, we, this is not about paying kickbacks. You cannot bribe the virus. So the government should make sure the money they release goes into providing the logistical support, boosting the morale of the healthcare. And the doctors and the nurses, the frontliners, they should also understand that this is about human life. They, they have sworn to protect human life. This is the time for them to really, we know they're doing great jobs, but this is not normal Time. So they should all make themselves available. They should they should as they, they, they should demonstrate patriotism. They should demonstrate nationalism, so that we will be able to contain the virus. We are all fearing for our loved ones back home. Fighting this also requires responsible citizenry. The citizens should do their part by practicing social distancing, prioritizing the lives of especially the vulnerable people, staying home for a month. We have stayed home for two months count and still counting so when the, our governments are saying like in ghana south africa ethiopia kenya and elsewhere are saying our people should stay home they should not agitate with the government they should stay home you may be a youth you may be a child you may have strong immune system without any underlying health condition but it's not about you it's about the others so we should prioritize the health of the others so what i would say is that we pray for unity for africa we we want the au to take leadership and our government should also take leadership at the national level the provincial authorities and the local government should show leadership and release the resources money we know is very good, but it is not better than human life. So we should, we, we should put humanity first and provide the political role and the financial resources that will go a um, long way to provide this, the, the health items, uh, the protective, health, um, protective items, making um, sanitizers available, masks available, so that everybody will be protected. That is the advice I'll give back home. It is not time for division. That is great advice. What a hopeful way to end our discussion. Uh, we wish you the very, very best and, and hope that the last, hopefully the last month will be, will be productive for you and that you can get past this just as we 
in the rest of the world are now going to embark on what you've been going through for the past two months. Uh, Michael Adney is a doctoral researcher from Ghana at the Research Institute of of Environmental Law at Wuhan University in Hubei province. He's also the vice president of the Ghanaian Student Association in Wuhan. He joins us on the line from his dormitory uh, where he's still confined uh, in Wuhan, but we uh, we thank you very much for taking the time to join us, Michael. You're writing now for the China Africa Project, so we're humbled and honored that your point of view and your perspective is now on our website. So I'll put some links to one of the essays that that Michael wrote for us. Uh, but you're also active on Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter handle so people can follow what you're reading and writing? Yeah, thank you, um, thank you, Eric, for this opportunity. My Twitter handle is Mike. Adney, Mike Adney, M-I-C-A-D-N-E-Y. I will put a link to your Twitter handle as well in the show notes of the show. Michael, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I also appreciate the time we do, Eric. Thanks so much for giving me a voice. Kobus, the biggest surprise for me is how Michael looked at this experience and is walking away from it really with a better impression of China than he had. And I guess that shows the power of the competent response that the Chinese had in addressing this. Now, China's response to COVID ID was by no means uh, smooth, and it was highly controversial. But we can't argue with the results now. And the fact is that they have more or less brought this thing under control. And speaking as an American... uh, It's, you know, it's showing to be a lot more difficult and the United States is really, really struggling. And given the fact that we in the United States and you in South Africa and most of Africa uh, do not live in authoritarian states with strong top-down government control, uh, this is going to be very, very difficult to contain. Uh, But in terms of Michael's perceptions of China, and I was kind of approaching this discussion thinking this is really going to hurt brand China in the eyes of these students, and whether future students will want to go and study in China, it doesn't sound like it from what Michael is saying. No, I also found that very interesting. Um, and I think it it really, um, you know, shows how the, the, the Chinese um, response to the crisis looks very different from within China, I think, than it's being portrayed outside. Um, and also, it's very interesting for me how most of the beef of of the students is actually with their low, their national governments rather than with the Chinese government. Isn't that the way it is in so many aspects of the China-Africa relationship that people uh, oftentimes express more cynicism towards their own government than the Chinese or others? So in some ways, just to see that mirrored is, is very, very interesting. Uh, Kenya was one case in particular because Kenyatta really seemed to struggle with this issue. The president at one point said he was going to send a plane to evacuate students, and then they, within 24, 48 hours, turned around and said they're not going to. And I think that was upon consideration of the fact that they just weren't equipped to bring back uh, the people and to properly quarantine them. The public opinion in, uh, in Africa... You know, it's very hard to tell just from social media, Twitter, and newspapers. I mean, you have to be on the ground. The continent, obviously, is so diverse and so large that it's impossible to get a snapshot of a billion people. But I would say just from my very, very close reading of African media every day, there was a decidedly negative view about bringing them back. And, And that was mixed with a lot of different emotions here. On the one hand, it was the risk of bringing back these students to potentially infect uh, people at home in it with a lack of public health infrastructure. But there was this sense, too, of, and, and I'd like to get your take on this, that 
you are, you know, you're over there. You're being well taken care of. We don't have that here. And there was this, and, and I thought that was interesting because these students are some of the best and the brightest that the continent has to offer. And that feeling that he had of being abandoned by his own people, even by his own friends and family, oh, I think that's really going to sting. And it's, it hurts a lot. Yes, I, I, have, I have sympathy for both sides of the situation because I can really see how, you know, as someone who has been a foreign student in, in Asia for, for several years in a stretch, it can be extremely isolating. Um, and frequently you have a, you have a real craving for just something familiar and particularly to to you know to to be with people and to speak in a language that you know and and you know those are those are very powerful and i can well imagine that these kind of messages of please don't come visit me um you know kind of would be very distressing at that moment at the same time you know being immersed in the discussions um in an african country now there's a lot of like african countries just have on on so many ways so many levels have um you know, don't have some of the basic ways that other countries are coping with it. So, for example, a lot of people have been pointing out that what does social distancing mean in uh, in, in African cities where people frequently live six, seven people in the same room, you know? Um, like, how, how, is, how is that supposed to work when people take minibus taxis to, to work and back, you know, and, and frequently don't, don't have the option of working from home? So, you know, from, from the continental perspective avoiding a kind of a, a an uncontrolled breakout in an in a densely populated city is is the number one priority um so i really have a lot of sympathy for both sides of the issue and i think it's important for us to state that michael's opinions and views certainly don't represent all of the 4600 students who are in Wuhan, and certainly those who are the 80,000 plus who are in China uh, as a whole. So there's a, a wide diversity of opinions. Uh, we just wanted to bring you one voice, and Michael's voice is you know, especially interesting in part because of his leadership role within the Ghanaian Students Association and the fact that he's in Wuhan as well. This is a topic that we cover every day in our daily email newsletter that Kobodis and I are putting out. Uh, and we're basically now only covering COVID ID. That is all we're doing, uh, from the economic impact to the diplomatic, to the students, to all aspects of it. So if you do China-Africa or even just Africa affairs for a living, and this is a professional-grade newsletter that we're putting out, uh, you're going to want to subscribe, really. I mean, and it's, this is why... We've got State Department, Foreign Office, World Bank, United Nations, Washington Post, New York Times, Quartz. They're all getting it every day. And it's this idea that if they're getting it every day and you're not, well, you're missing out on what everybody is kind of talking about. And, and we're really proud of the fact that our ideas now are starting to circulate within these communities, these professional communities, to better understand China-Africa relations. Uh, go ahead, try it out for two weeks for free. If you don't like it, you can cancel anytime. You won't be charged within that two-week period. You'll get two weeks of the newsletter. You'll get full access to the website. Uh, we offer a 50% discount for students and faculty. So $149 a year is our standard rate, and then $75 a year or $7 a month for students and faculty. So we hope that you'll join our growing community of readers. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. As always, Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project 
to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>